Take your Bible, please, and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Well, it's been so good to be with you the last uh, couple of days. Thank you, Steve, for those uh, kind words of introduction. We're proud of Steve as an alumnus of Southern Seminary. And uh, personally, as a brother in Christ, as a fellow St. Louis Cardinal fan, and for those generous comments about the two life-changing books, a statement which lends color to his opinion about the other seven. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. But your pastor has, uh, thank you for the invitation to Philip Pulpit today, Pastor, and he has been just so uh, uh, wonderful in his hospitality from, from first to last, and he is, and the whole staff have represented you all so well. So I have a very high opinion of this church, even though I've had limited contact with, uh, with the rest of you, just from the staff. Your pastor, especially, and feeling under the weather the past few days, has just done a remarkable job of hosting me and uh, took me in to see some things in the city last night. And uh, just thank you all for the wonderful hospitality. Uh, that I have received here. Well, there's a wonderful promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where the Bible says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how do you know if God is for you, as we sang a few minutes ago. How do you know if God is for you? That's a very important question when you consider the alternative. If the alternative is God is for you or God is against you, well, if you, that's a very important question to, to know the answer to because if God is against you, there isn't much hope, is there? So how do you know if God is for you? If you want to get married and nothing ever works out, does that mean God is against you? And what if you marry the person of your dreams? Does that mean God is for you? But then what if the marriage breaks apart? Does that mean God is against you? What if you lose your job or you can't get a job? Does that mean that God is against you? And what if you have unprecedented job success? Does that mean God is for you? If you live in your dream house, does that mean God is for you? And if you can't stand the house where you live and feel trapped in that, does that mean that God is against you? If you're always having money trouble, does that mean God is against you? And if you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, <laughs> does that mean God is for you? How do you know? How do you know if God is for you or against you? In the final analysis, none of the things I've just mentioned are any indication one way or the other. For all the bad things I have mentioned have happened to those God is clearly for. And all the good things I've mentioned have happened to those God is dead set against. So how do you know? Well, ultimately, as we just heard the choir sing. We know that God is for us because of what the Bible says God has done for us. If you're taking notes, that's my first point. We know God is for us because of what the Bible says he has done for us. The Bible is the record of what God has done for us. And so we know that he is for us because of unchanging truth, not because of changing circumstances that seem good one day and not good the next. And in this text here, there are two sentences. If God is for us, who is against us? And then the second part of that. Our first sentence is, what shall we say to these things? And then if God is for us, who is against us? So it begins by the Apostle Paul sort of stroking his beard and considering what shall we say to these things. And he comes to a conclusion and says, 
if God is for us, who is against us? Now, as one of your seminary professors, you know I'm duty-bound to mention Greek at least once while I'm here, right? But it makes a huge difference because the first word of that second sentence, if God is for us, it's important to know that there are several different words in Greek that translate into English as if. And it's sort of like I'm told that those who live up around the North Pole have some 16 different words for snow. They have a different word meaning a heavy wet snow, a totally different word for a powdery, dry powdery snow, 16 different words, but when they're translated from their language into English, they all are translated snow. Well, in Greek, they had three different words at least for if, but in English, we have to put it in context to understand what they, what they mean. So in English, it looks like this. A man might say, well, I'm going fishing tomorrow if... It doesn't rain. And we understand, well, maybe he will, maybe he won't. It's going to depend on the circumstances. But another man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. Well, they both said if, but he's going regardless of the circumstances. And that's the kind of word if that's used in our text here today in Romans 8.31. We could almost translate it as since God is for us. But what brought Paul to that conclusion? So we go back to the first sentence there where he says, what shall we say to these things? And he strokes his beard and thinks about these things. And these things cause him to conclude God is for us. So what are these things that convince the Apostle Paul and ought to convince believers in Christ here this morning that God is for us? Well, in one sense, these things are the whole book of Romans up until this point. But in the immediate context, these things are the things he's just been writing about in the previous paragraph. So let's look at that beginning in verse 29, where he tells us that the Holy Spirit whom God gives to us when we come to Christ helps us to pray when we don't know how to pray. Look at that in verse 29. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that's God the Father, who searches hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit living in the believer, what the mind of the Spirit, what is the mind of the Spirit? Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He says, we don't know what to pray for as we should. We're not omniscient. We don't know the future. Should we pray for things to go this way or should we pray for things to go this way? We don't don't know. We can imagine scenarios in which both or either one would be the right one. But we don't know. Only God knows. And so there are times we know we want to pray. We know we should pray. We need to pray. But we don't know what to pray. The Bible says God is so good. And when we don't know what to pray, he prays for us. The Holy Spirit prays for us. You ever been there? You ever been where maybe you couldn't pray? Your heart was so heavy like lead in your chest, all you can do is just sort of cast yourself across the bed and just groan outwardly, oh God. Or maybe you've been in such physical pain, you literally could not pray you've been so heavily sedated perhaps because of some surgery or something else and you can't put two thoughts together in your head and you've never needed prayer more and you can't pray God does not look down from heaven and wring his hands and in the good old southern way say well bless his heart (laughs) bless her heart if Come on, can't you give me something? Can you give me some little prayer? Give me something to work with. Come on, would you? And I'll help you out. No, no, our God is so good. He is so great that even when we can't pray or we don't know what to pray, he prays for us. Notice it's the Spirit himself who prays for us. In those times when all you can do is just sort of groan Godwardly, the Holy Spirit 
prays and encodes upon those groans the very will of God. Because you notice it says here, the Spirit himself intercedes for us, groaning too deep for words, and he does this according to the will of God, as though the Holy Spirit could pray any other way. Right? When we don't know what to pray, we can't pray. All we can do maybe is groan God really. He prays for us. And the Apostle Paul says, you know what? If God will do that, God is for me. If he'll pray for me when I can't pray, if he prays for me when I don't know what to pray, if the Spirit himself will do that and he prays according to the very will of God, God is for me. But that's not all. Another thing the Bible tells us that he's done for us, and Paul says, that convinces me God is for us, is the very famous, very next verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know, now stop right there. Have you ever noticed that before? We know Romans 8, 28 generally. How do we know that's true? You ever stop to realize that's how it be begins? We know that all things work together for good, those who love God and so forth. Well, we know that because of the previous verse, don't we? But we'll come back to that in just a moment. And we know that, not for everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good. Our ultimate good, God's glory. Not for everybody, but for those who are called according to His purpose. This means everything in the life of a Christian ultimately works out for our good and our glory. An astonishing statement that's one of the hardest to believe at certain points in our lives, but this is why it's important to reinforce the truth. I see this, but what is the truth? I feel this, what is the truth? The circumstances say this, what is the truth? And the truth is that God works in his almighty hands all things for our ultimate good and for his glory. So he takes things that in and of themselves are not good. Some things are, are evil. And he works them with other things to perform a divine alchemy so that the final outcome is gold. And the Bible says he does this for all things. Have you ever seen the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8, 28? It's Psalm 119, 91. For all things are your servants. All things are your servants. Martin Luther said, even the devil. Yes, he's the devil, but as Luther said, he's God's devil. He's on God's chain, and he cannot move apart from God allowing him to do so. All things, even things that are evil, as I said, things that you say, this is pure evil. God says, amen, you're right. He can take even things that are pure evil and work them together in his almighty hands to perform this divine alchemy. So this verse is not calling us to put on rose-colored glasses and, and see things differently than they are. This doesn't call us to say, well, there's a silver lining in every cloud. Some clouds don't have silver linings. The Bible says some things are evil. They're pure evil. And the Bible doesn't call us to call them anything other than that. But what it is calling us to believe is God can take things that are nothing but 100% evil and work them for our ultimate good and for his glory. There are times that's one of the hardest things in the Bible to confess. But we do. And we can affirm that everything in our lives, even the worst things that have ever happened to us, will ultimately cause us to say to bless God that it happened and if we knew everything God knew and we had God's heart the day will come we will look back and we will say we would have allowed everything that God has allowed what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you if we had the time and the transparency to hear from everyone here this morning in a group this size I'm sure we'd hit stories of things that someone should be put in prison for or worse. And you live long enough, you'll have some pretty awful things happen. You live long enough, the death of everyone you love most, you'll experience the death of everyone you love most. 
You live long enough, you'll have a lot of physical things happen that are, are pretty bad. Yeah, I've been through cancer and had hospital-induced stroke just 11 months ago. Uh, you know, and I could go on and on. You have your stories, too. Things that if I had been in my parents' generation, at least three different times would have killed me. You live long enough, all that will happen to you. As well as many other evil things and just hard things in life. But the Bible calls us to believe that in every one of those things, God's almighty hands are at work and he can work the worst things that ever happened to us into our ultimate good and for his glory. And sometimes a Christian, only a Christian can say that, by the way. Only a Christian can say, I believe all things work together for my good and, and for God's glory. Because actually the reverse is true for unbelievers. All things work together for their evil, for those who are not called by God, those who are not his people. And for all eternity, they will wish that the worst things that ever happened to them, best things that ever happened, the best things that ever happened, never happened to them. The greatest blessings they ever received. They will suffer all eternity for those because they did not thank God for them. They did not use them for God's glory. They used them selfishly for selfish ends. They didn't, God didn't enter into the picture at all. And the greatest blessings he ever gave them will bear testimony against them. And their suffering will increase for all eternity because of the best things that ever happened. But our God is so good. And he is so great that he can take the worst things that ever happened to us and turn them into ultimate glory for which we will praise God forever. And again, right now, it's hard to imagine that. That's why we reinforce the truth. That as I look upon this thing that happened to me and that thing that happened to me and this horrible thing, and someday I'm going to praise God for that, it's no way. Well, only a Christian can say that. And often we say it through clenched teeth and we say it through tears because we cannot see any good, nothing but evil in what happened to us. But I want to remind you who wrote this verse. The man who wrote this verse gives us detailed description of parts of his life there. Is it in 2 Corinthians 11 or, or 12? But he says, you know what? I have been beaten so many times I've lost count. How many times have you been beaten for the sake of the gospel? 195 times he felt the whip of the Jews across his back for the sake of the gospel. How many times have you? He said, I've been stoned and left for dead. How many times have you been thought dead because of the persecution against you? He said, night and a day, I've, you know, I've spent a whole night and a whole day in the Mediterranean Sea because I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in, 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 in the country, in rivers. He said, I've often gone without food and I've been many sleepless nights and exposure to cold. And he just goes on and on and on. And he could literally look at us and say, I have suffered more than any of you. However, God also gave him the ultimate human experience. Where he does say in 2 Corinthians there again that God took him to heaven. He said, I don't know if I was in the body. I don't know if I was out of the body. I don't know. God knows. But he was given a glimpse of heaven. And if he could talk to us today about that, he'd say, unfortunately, I didn't get a book or movie deal out of it like people in your day who go to heaven. But he actually went there and he got to see some, we don't know, but something of the glory of the place and the future and the outcome and, and the reward for all of his sufferings and just a brief glimpse of some of all this. And when he came back, he wrote in Romans 8, in this very chapter, that I'm convinced that that. The glories, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. He'd seen it. And so Paul could say, you think you've suffered? Well, yes, I don't deny that you haven't suffered and suffered horribly, but you cannot deny that I've suffered way more than you, but I've seen more than you. And so I can bear witness. You have to take it by faith, but I have seen it, and I can tell you that the sufferings of this present time, as awful as they are and as hard as mine have been, they're nothing compared to what's coming. 
And the Bible calls us to believe that. And Paul says, you know what? If God will do that, if God will take everything that ever happens to me, even the worst things that ever happened to me, not, not just neutralize them so that one day we can look forward to a day when the memory is gone, the memories don't hurt us anymore. No, no, he says it will be infinitely better than that. God will reward us so much for that. We will praise God for the worst things that ever happened to us, much less the blessings that we have. Paul says, if God will do that, God is for me. But that's not all. He goes on to give us more reasons that as he thought about them, convinced him God is for us. And it's the famous, what we sometimes call Paul's golden chain. Starts in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he, Jesus, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, many made like Jesus. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you are in Christ, we're told here in verse 29 that he foreknew you. And the word there means much more than he just knew about you in advance, that he knew some things you would do in advance. It's much more of an intimate word than that. He, we could almost translate it as he foreloved you. He knew everything about you. He knew all the decisions and sins you would commit in the future, and he loved you anyway. Those whom he foreloved, it says, these he also called. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, rather, let's go back to that. He foreknew us and then he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. If you are in Christ, you have been predestined to become conformed to the image of of his son, Jesus, so that he would be the firstborn of many who would look like him. All those in Christ are predestined to become like Jesus Christ, not like him in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods, as the Mormons believe. Rather, we are going to be like him in his sinless, perfect humanity, reflecting the glory of God from every cell and pore of our bodies. Now, if this text had said, we have been predestined to become like angels, we would have rejoiced forever to be creatures that glorious. Throughout the Bible, times, there are times when people who knew better, when angels were revealed to them, fell on their faces. I mean, the Apostle John, right? By the time he wrote the book of Revelation, so this Old man, had, he had a pretty good theology, don't you think? Pretty sound. And yet twice in the book of Revelation, when angels appeared to him, he fell on, they, they appeared just in like 15 watt bulb versions of their glory. He fell on his face twice and worshiped them and they had to say, don't do that. Worship God. And as the old man got up, I'm sure he said something like, I, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I just couldn't help it. You're too glorious. He knew intellectually you don't worship angels, but when he saw them, they were so glorious, he couldn't help himself. And if you'll notice, even this time of year especially, our culture has somehow developed the idea that when we die and go to heaven, we morph, humans morph into angels. We morph into angels. I mean, you're going to see it here pretty soon. You know, Clarence used to live on earth, but now he's an angel second class, right? And Jimmy Stewart's going to help him get his, his angel's wings, right? Somehow, humans morph into angels. And you see this if you look at a political cartoon and some famous person dies. And it will show them in heaven, perhaps, looking like angels, well, if that were true, 
If we were going to be creatures that glorious, we would have rejoiced forever. We we're going to be predestined to be creatures that glorious. But folks, it's better than that. We have been predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that we, Jesus was the first and we be many like him. Many made like Jesus. We are going to be made like Jesus himself. We know in 1 John, it's just, it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We don't know a lot of the details, but we know this. When he appears, we shall be like him. Paul says, you know what? If God's going to make me like Jesus, I think he's for me. But the chain goes on. There's another link here. Those whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. With a call through the gospel that awakens the dead. He calls us through the gospel. And anytime the gospel go, goes forth, all who hear it are called. Theologians refer to that as the general call. It's a sincere call. And all who come to Christ will never be cast out, the Bible says. But theologians also refer to a specific call or special call that comes through the gospel like that night, that Thursday night when I was nine years old. And I'd been raised in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night since nine months before I was born. And I'd heard the gospel countless times. But that Thursday night, I heard him calling me in a way I'd never heard him calling me before. In a way, he did not call the boys on my right and the boys on my left that night. He was calling me. And he had no obligation to do so. He didn't need me. I added nothing to the team, but he called me, undeserving, with the same kind of call that he gave when he called Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus, come forth. And if he hadn't said Lazarus, they all would have come forth. But he called Lazarus and regenerated him through that call. And the first thing he wanted to do was come to Christ when he heard that call. And that's what he does through the gospel, calling people to himself. And then those whom he called, it says these, he also justified. Justified means more than merely having all your sins forgiven forever. If, if we can even use the term like that, merely all your sins forgiven. It's that, but it's much more than that. Because do you realize... If you had never sinned in your life, you couldn't go to heaven. If all your sins were forgiven, if that's what justification meant, all your sins are forgiven, so you're back to zero, you still couldn't go to heaven because you have to have more to go to heaven than no sin. If you'd never sinned in your life, as I said, by the end of your life, zero on the sin meter, you still couldn't go to heaven because you have to have more to go to heaven than no sin. You must also have perfect righteousness. See, it's one thing not to break the law. It's another thing to positively keep the law. You must not only obey the commands that begin with thou shalt not, but we must also obey the commands that say thou shalt. I want you to imagine that this point here on the pulpit is the center point of a line that extends infinitely in this direction minus one minus two minus three and infinitely in this direction plus one plus two plus three to infinity the bible says that our sins it's jonathan edwards former minister in this state 300 years ago As he once famously put it, my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. Because he knew that every second we sin. Now, if someone says, can you go one second without sin? Sometimes people say, well, yes, I guess I could. Well, there are two problems with that. I mean, number one is I'll demonstrate we can't. Second, if you could go, as they will argue, if you can go one second without sin, why can't you go two? Well, that's reasonable. If you can go two, you can go ten, can't you? Well, yeah. If you can go 10, you can go a minute, can't you? Well, I guess theoretically I can. If you can go one minute, you can go 10 minutes, and you end up with sinless perfectionism as a possibility. 
But the reality is we never go one second without sin. The greatest commandment is what? Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. So for starters, we never do that. But someone also put it this way. If sin were blue, everything we ever did, every word we ever said, every motive we ever had, every thought we ever had would be some shade of blue. Some would be a lighter blue, some would be a dark blue, but everything, every word, deed, motive, action would be some shade of blue. So that everything we do is infected to some degree with sin. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be, but it does mean that we are thoroughly infected by sin. We are not utterly sinful in that we're as bad as we can be in everything but we are thoroughly affected by it there's no part of us that's not affected by sin and so everything we ever do is affected by sin even the best things we ever do when you stop and help some stranger on the side of the road when you get up in the middle of the night for a sick child when you do something unselfish for someone else even our best deeds are infected at least for a moment even if we're not aware of it, with some degree of sin. It may be nothing more than, well, I hope someone sees me do this. Or I hope my spouse appreciates this. Or it may be nothing more than, man, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do this. So there's some selfishness to some degree, some pride, something, some sin that tinges to some degree every word, every deed, every thought, every motive. What does the Bible say about this? The Bible says that even our righteousnesses, it's a plural word for individual act of, acts of righteousness. This act of righteousness, this act of righteousness, this time you did what was right, this time when you did what was right and good, what you ought to have done. The Bible says even our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. Before God, compared to God's holiness, our best righteousness is filthy rags. And if you want to know the Hebrew behind this, it's not very pleasant, but to give you an idea, it's basically taking a dirty diaper and handing it to God. That's what a filthy rag is. And so the Bible says our best deeds we're offering to God look like this. So in those times when you say this is righteousness, this is unrighteousness, and I choose righteousness, good. That's what you ought to do. In some sense, God is pleased with that. When you say this is, this is obedience and this is sin and I choose obedience, good. That's what you ought to do. In some sense, God is pleased with that. The Bible says, though, that even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We know our sins are, but the best things we have ever done in our lives compared to God's holiness, it's like trying to impress him with a gift of a dirty diaper. That's why Edwards could say, my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. Because we never go one second without sin. And the greatest commandment, as I said a moment ago, love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And since we never do that, that means every sin is also a double sin. Because whenever we're sinning, and when is that? Every moment. At that moment, we're also breaking the greatest of all commandments. So every sin is, is a double sin, and we're breaking the greatest of all commandments every moment. So our sins, as he said, are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. But if all of our sins are forgiven, if you had never sinned, that just brings you back to zero, neutral. But you have to have more to go to heaven than no sin, and we have infinite sin. We must also have perfect righteousness, and we have none. But there was a man, a man who came from heaven, a man who lived 33 years of perfect righteousness. He never broke the law of God, not even once. Under the pressures of the constant false accusations and fatigue and the pressures of the crowd and the Pharisees, not once did he ever just kind of lose it, but get it under control, you know. Just lost it for a second there, but got it under control. Never once did he sin. And every moment he kept the law of God perfectly. Every moment of his life he loved the Lord with all of his heart, all of his soul, 
all of his mind, all of his strength, and his neighbor as himself. And he is the only one by his life. Jesus earned heaven. And that qualified him to be a substitute for those who forfeited heaven by their sin like every one of us. And he willingly offered himself as a substitute on the cross. And absorbed the wrath of God for sinners like us. And we know God accepted that because God raised him from the dead. And ascended him to heaven from which someday he's going to come to be judge over all. So on the cross that great exchange took place. Where as 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. For us, that we, the infinite sinners, might become zero? That we might become neutral? No, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we believe into Christ, that's literally what the word means, we faith into Christ. You've heard of being united with Christ by faith. We believe into Christ, we're united with him, and we get credit for his life. Think of that. We get credit for having lived the life of Jesus. God looks upon you if you are in Christ, and he looks upon you as though you healed all those people. As you spoke all those words, as you had the perfectly pure heart of Christ, as though you had the perfectly pure mind of Christ. And on the cross, God looked upon Jesus as though he had lived my life. And you know what? My life got the perfect son of God, the atomic bomb of the wrath of God. That's what it means to be justified, not merely having all your sins forgiven. If we can even think of merely all your sins ever forgiven, we are declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ. And believe it or not, it gets even better. For those whom he justified, we're told here, these he also glorified, made like Christ forever and ever. And notice that it's past tense here. In the mind of God, it's done for his people. So the Apostle Paul steps back and says, what do we say to these things? What do we say to these things? What things? Well, I mean, he gives me his Holy Spirit who prays for me when I don't know what to pray. When he prays for me when I can't pray. And he prays the very will of God because it's the very Holy Spirit of God praying for me. And he takes everything that ever happens to me, even the worst things that ever happened to me, and he transforms them by working them together in his almighty hand so the alchemy of this ultimate good and my God's glory happens. And he doesn't just neutralize the pain so one day I can look forward to no more memory, no more pain. No, it will be so great. I will bless God forever for the worst things that have ever happened to me. And then... Before the foundation of the world, when you knew everything about me, he knew every sin I would ever commit, he loved me anyway. And predestined me, me, to become like, not just an angel, like Jesus. And then when I was an enemy of Jesus, he called me with a call that awakens the dead and made Jesus irresistibly beautiful to me. And he then gave me credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus. And in his mind, he's already made me like Christ forever and ever. What shall we say to these things? Well, we could say a lot. But at the very least, we can say, God is for us. Well, if God is for me like this, I think our natural response is, then why is my life so hard? Why is my life so hard? Well, life is hard because we do have forces against us. This passage doesn't say if God is for us, nothing is against us. It doesn't say that. It says who is against us. I mean, for starters, the Bible tells us the, the whole world is against us, Right? Jesus said, if the world hated me, the world's going to hate you. And to live as a Christian in this world is like swimming against the current all the time, right? Everything you're for as a Christian, the world is against that. Everything you're against as a Christian, the world is, is for that. And we're swimming against the current of the culture, and the current is getting stronger every day, isn't it? The whole world is against us in one sense. But not only that. 
The Bible tells us that the flesh is against us. Now, the flesh just isn't to be equated with the body. The Bible uses the term the spirit and the flesh. There's a new part of us regenerated and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. But there's still a part of us, though justified, there's still a part of us that finds sin appealing and finds temptation attractive. That part of us is called the flesh. Though we're fully forgiven, though we're justified, there's a part of us that still finds sin appealing and temptation attractive. And that makes life hard. The world makes life hard. The flesh makes life hard. This sin factory that beats in my chest causes me to love things that make my life hard. And it causes me to do things that leave scars on my body and scars on my relationships and make life much harder for me. And sometimes those actions of the flesh lead to God's loving discipline. Discipline is hard. I love the King James here. It makes me laugh every time when I read it in Hebrews 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Explain that to your child next time you, you know, discipline. This is, I'm going to discipline you. It's going to seem not to be joyful. God's discipline sometimes makes life hard because of what we do in the flesh. So the world is against us, the flesh is against us, and of course the devil is against us. The devil made life harder for Job, he makes life harder for us. Through the culture, through individual attacks. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here, when he says, if God is for us, who is against us? The late uh, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, Philadelphia, said, it's like Paul has a set of old-fashioned scales here. And on one side he's throwing peanuts who is against us? Well, the whole world is against me, Paul. Okay, put that peanut over there. Plunk. Anything else? Yeah, this sin factory that beats in my chest works against me. It wars against me. Okay, put that peanut over there. Plink. Anything else? Well, the devil sure is against me, Paul. Put that over there. Plink. Anything else? Well, well, I think my boss is against me. You know, my, my teacher is against me. Plunk, put that there. And then it's as though Paul throws the anvil of God on the other side. Boom! If God is for us, who is against us? The world, the flesh, the devil, your boss, your teachers, who are they? Yes, they may all be against you, but who are they if God is for us? So then, what do we do? Well, we remember that if God is for us, then no one can thwart his eternal plan for us. No one can thwart his eternal plan for us. Your place in heaven is secure if you are in Christ. If you could lose your salvation, as some people teach, if you could lose your salvation, my brother or sister, you already would have. You already would have lost it. But this says that our place in heaven is secure. God has decreed From the foundation of the world, if he's foreknown you, then he has predestined you to be like Christ. He called you toward that end. He has justified you, and in his mind, he has already glorified you and begun that process. It's future in our experience, but it's done in the mind of God. Nothing or no one can thwart his eternal plan. If you've fallen under false teaching in the past, those false teachers can't cause you to lose your salvation. If you've left some religious group and now condemns you, there is no religious group, nothing that calls itself a church, no church official, no group that can decree that you lose your salvation. And neither unbelieving parents, nor an unbelieving boss, nor unbelieving teachers, nor any other unbeliever can so tempt you or so confine you or restrict you from following Christ like you would really like to do that he would ever reject you. My brother or sister, when it says here, God is worse. Who is against us? The who includes you. The who includes you. You are not able to put yourself into God's grace by yourself. And brother, sister, you cannot sin your way out of God's grace. Now, anyone who hears that and takes that as license 
to live any way you want and still go to heaven if you once make a profession of faith in Christ, they're probably a stranger to grace in the first place. Brother, I, I'm, I'm making a pastoral comfort, I hope, to people. I'm thinking of people with very sensitive consciences who are terrified today that because they cannot conquer a particular sin or because they've committed a particular sin so many times that they're finally going to exhaust the patience of God and he'll slam the door in your face at the end of it all. Let me remind you again, brother or sister. He knew every sin you would ever commit before he called you. And you did not do anything good enough to impress him, to let you in. And he will keep you from ever sending your way out of his grace. You won't want to. You'll hate every sin you ever commit. When we sin, we sin because we want to sin. At that moment, we want sin more than righteousness. But often we hate ourselves even in the act and despise ourselves as soon as we're finished. And that's often one of the best evidences of eternal life. The battle with sin. You don't give in. You don't give up. You fight and you hate when you do fail. And you constantly ask for God's forgiveness. But there are many whose consciences are so tender, they are fearful that someday they will finally exhaust the patience of God. My brother and sister, the who includes you. God is for us. Who is against us? See, when God called you, not only did he know every sin you would ever commit, he knew every sin you have not committed but would have if you had had the opportunity. Occasionally, I mean, most of the time I feel like Edwards. My sins are infinite upon infinite, multiplied by infinite. But every once in a while I'll look at someone and think, well, I'm not as bad as they are. Or I'll do something, kind of be impressed with myself. But God knows how much greater a sinner I would have been if maybe I'd had their circumstances. If I'd had the temptations and pressures someone else had. I would have sinned far more than I have. And he loved me anyway. Well, let me begin to wrap this up here. I do to encourage you to do what Paul said here when he said, what do we think about these things? And he's reinforcing the truth. I need that many times every day. The Bible, I, 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 the, my mind tells me this. What does the Bible say? My feelings tell me this. What is the truth? Circumstances tell me this. What is the truth? Culture says this is right. What is the truth? I need to reinforce the truth over and over again. To put steel in my backbone, steel in my convictions. I know what I feel. I know what people are saying. I know what I'm tempted to think. But what is the truth? That's what Paul said. Lord, you've enabled me. You've allowed me to suffer more than anybody I know. But does that mean God doesn't love me? What is the truth? And let me also say, when God is for you, he's for you forever. He is for you forever. So don't doubt his love in the hard circumstances. Several years ago, I was reading a book by the most famous of the Puritan theologians, John Owen. And I was... Uh, reading this book called Communion with God and I was up to page 13 thus far nothing had really struck me powerful, powerfully and then I read one sentence and it turned on tears like you'd flip a light switch here's the sentence the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. The most hurtful thing you can ever do to God is not to believe that he loves you. He gives you his Holy Spirit who prays for you when you don't know what to pray, you can't pray. He predestined you 
He foreknew you, knowing everything about you. He loved you anyway, predestined you to be like Jesus forever and called you to himself when you were running the opposite way. And he gave you credit for having lived the life of Jesus and has already in his mind made you like Christ forever. And you wonder if he loves you? What could convince you more? Winning the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes would be better proof than that? When God is for you, he is for you forever. So the obvious question to conclude with is, is God for you? Is God for you? If you have turned from living for yourself, if you have come to Christ, and though you may say it tremblingly and and anxiously somewhat, yes, I think I have done that. I think he has brought me to himself. Then, my brother, sister, take all the pleasure and joy you can out of affirming, God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. Because he is for all who will come to him. But if you have never come to him, Realize you have made yourself his enemy. You stand against him. And you may look around and say, well, you know, my life is going pretty well. I wouldn't trade places with anyone here. My life is doing pretty well. I think God and I are on pretty good terms. My friend, you have made yourself his enemy. And though your life may be going well right now, ultimately you will stand before him and realize what it means that God is against you. And to your horror, you will realize that. And if God is against you, who can be for you? But if you will come to Christ, you can be sure that God is for you. Regardless of what you've done or how many times you've done it, he will receive you. And in his name, I can say, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Because if you come, regardless of whether you ever get the spouse you want or the house you want or the job you want or the education you want or the income you want or anything else you want, regardless of whether you get those things or not, come to Christ and you get God. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the church. Thank you for all your gifts. And Lord, I pray that by your mercy today you would make Jesus Christ irresistibly beautiful in the sight of every person here. May those who perhaps have never come to him before want to run to Christ in their hearts and wrap their arms around him and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Not because I deserve it. I don't. But Jesus does. And I come in his name. May all of us prize Jesus and treasure him as never before. I ask this in his name and for your glory. Amen.